0: Okay, well, over the last couple of months, we've made it uh, through almost three chapters of the book of Romans, and so far in the book of Romans, we've essentially been dealing with, with really one major theme over the last couple of months, and the theme is this, all human beings are accountable and, and therefore answer to the God of the Bible, Okay, all human beings are accountable before God. We are answerable. Our lives, we have to give an answer for the way that we have lived, the way that we've conducted ourselves before God. That's what Paul has spent these first couple of chapters spelling out for us. He has brought us all into the courtroom of God, okay? He he has made the case that we all will have to give an answer for our lives to the God of the Bible. Hitler does not get off the hook, okay? The, the grave doesn't wipe the slate clean. And you don't want it to. The, the terrorists who flew planes into the Twin Towers, they do not get off the hook. Just because no one had a chance to hold them accountable in this life does not mean that they get off the hook. But neither do you. Whether you're a believer in God or you've never heard of the God of the Bible in your entire life, every person in the world, rightly, as Paul has so clearly demonstrated and explained, has to give an answer for their life to the God of the Bible. And that's what he's been showing us for two and a half chapters. But today, the Apostle Paul, he's going to bring that accountability to a verdict He is going to wrap this whole thing up by demonstrating not only are we accountable to God, but he is bringing forth a guilty verdict before him. He is accusing every person on the planet of being guilty of crimes so heinous against the holy God that they are worthy of eternal death in hell. You, me, your grandmother your children, your favorite high school teacher, your childhood hero, your mentor, and everyone else, Paul says, are all guilty, guilty, guilty before God. And not in the sense of like a speeding ticket, where it's like, well, yeah, everybody does that. Okay, if you catch me, I guess I'll pay the fine. But in the sense of the highest, most heinous, most horrific and offensive crimes against God and against your fellow man. Paul's brought us into the courtroom and he stands as the chief prosecutor and he says, you are worthy of death. Guilty before God. Despite the fact that he doesn't know you. Despite the fact that that he never met you, that he was born and died 2,000 years before you ever even came into existence in this world, Paul says to you today, and to everyone you love, and to everyone in the furthest corners of the world, you are guilty sinners before God, worthy of suffering in hell for all of eternity, worthy of it, deserving of it, for what you have done, and how you have sinned against God. You deserve it. That is the verdict that Paul is bringing to us this morning. And if we take Paul seriously at all, we need to stop and think about what he's really saying. It ought to stop us in our tracks. That accusation is something that I don't, I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times before. Stop and think about what Paul is saying. He, he is not speaking hyperbolically, he is dead serious. should stop us in our tracks what in the world is paul saying and how can he say that about me and about you and why is he saying it and as we study our passage today that's the outline that i want to walk us through as we look at what paul says in romans 3 verses 9 through 20 what is paul's accusation against us like what exactly is he saying here what is he accusing us of How can he say that? How can he accuse us of it? And why is he writing it? What is his purpose? First thing I want us to look at is the actual accusation that Paul levels against us. What does Paul actually say that you are guilty of before God? What is the heinous crime that Paul is accusing you of before the Lord and against your fellow man? Okay? What is Paul's accusation against us? And there are four kind of branches of Paul's accusation against you before God. The first is a failure to seek and glorify God. The first thing that Paul accuses you of is a failure to seek and to glorify God. He says you are guilty... Of not pursuing God and not seeking His glory. And through that, your whole life and every good deed you have done has become worthless and not good. It is all a selfish, self righteous, pride inducing effort, not done for the glory of God, done simply for ourselves. Here's what He says specifically in Romans 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become useless or worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Nobody does good. Stop and think about that for a second. God is going to judge our lives. He's going to judge us for the works that we have done. He's going to judge us according to how we have lived. And Paul says, there is nobody who has done good, not even one. Now, I don't know about you, but my high school resume was juiced to the gills with good works. It was like absolutely chock full of volunteering and public service. I never got in a single fight in high school. I never had a detention. I never got a tardy. I was never even late for one single class. I don't think I even missed a single day of school throughout my entire high school career. Now, my dad was a teacher, so I kind of had to be there. And here, Paul has the audacity to say to me, who volunteers, who who spent time teaching kids, underprivileged kids, how to read in elementary schools. Who served. He says to me, There is no one who does good, not even one. Excuse me, Paul. Have you seen my resume? But you see, Paul's not accusing everybody of being equally externally evil. He's not saying that nobody in the world like, ever tries to do the right thing. What he's saying is people are so messed up that even what they think is good is not good. And people are so messed up in their motives that fundamentally all of our good deeds at their root flow from our obsession with self our obsession with self-righteousness, our obsession with self-justification. And they all flow from an unwillingness to seek and glorify God himself. We will not forfeit our glory. See, my high school resume, it's actually like a rap sheet before God. My high school resume, it's like the strongest indictment against me. I think... That it it stands up pretty well, and it looks pretty good, and it's pretty shiny. But before God, what it displays with incredible clarity is my own self-righteousness, my own obsession with looking good, my own obsession with getting ahead in life, my own obsession with getting what I want for myself, for my own flesh, and for my own glory. And it declares it with great clarity before God. It's like a giant indictment against me. It's not full of things that are actually good and glorifying to the Lord. It's full of things that are uniquely pandered to my own flesh, my own self-righteousness, and my own desires to get ahead and make me feel good. Paul says no one seeks God. No one is glorifying Him. No one's even pursuing Him. You are guilty before God because you don't even seek him. And therefore, your deeds, they're worthless, they're garbage, they're trash. That's what he says. Now, when I was an atheist, I was an atheist all the way up until I was 20 years old. And if you would have told me I was guilty of not seeking God, like, if you would have told me I was guilty of committing some sins and you could, like, kind of see through my facade... Like, maybe I would have handed it to you. But if you would have said I'm guilty of not seeking God, now that one would have gotten me fuming, boiling. I would have been extremely angry and I would have totally disagreed. Because here is how I felt in my heart. Okay, I felt like I genuinely tried to seek God. And the reason that I was an atheist is that God was silent and absent and missing from me. And now here's Paul saying that I didn't seek God, but I, I couldn't tell you how many times. I said quietly in my heart, when no one was around, I just called out to God something like this. God, if you're real, I need you to show yourself to me. God, if you're real, I need you to just turn the lights on in my bedroom. I need you to do that. If you're real, God, that has to be the easiest thing in the world for you. Just turn the lights on. Laying in my bed in the dark. I cry out to God and say, I say, I'll follow you, I'll believe you if you just do that. I felt like I was seeking God, and God never did it for me. And now Paul wants to say the problem was me, that I didn't seek God. And you want to know what? Paul was right. He's right. I was not seeking God. I was seeking a magic genie. I was seeking somebody to be my little peon, my little servant, to flip the lights on when I told him to. I, I was seeking somebody to operate like a mystical, magical little genie. I wanted somebody to talk with me through the clouds, like Mufasa talking to Simba. That's what I was seeking, a mystical, magical genie who would defy life as he had designed it. You see, that's not who God is. God is a lot less mystical than the little magic genie that I was seeking. I I wanted him to magically flip the lights on without flipping the light switch. You see, every time I flip a light switch and the lights come on, that is God at work through his creation exactly as he's designed it. That's God at work in the world that he's made. Where things actually function like he's designed them. Where, where electricity doesn't just randomly start flowing and praise God that it doesn't. See, praise God that lights go on when the switch is turned on. Praise God that he made a world that is ordered and makes sense and functions according to his plan, to his purpose, and not just my random whimsical wishes. He is not a mystical magic genie. I wanted God to show up in the clouds. Do you know where God showed up? He came as a man, a real life human being that that dawned flesh that we might interact with him and engage with him. And he gave us his word, plain, simple, readable, understandable, tangible. You can know him. He could not be more plainly revealed. But I didn't want who he had revealed himself to be. I wanted a mystical magic genie, not God. And in all of it, you could trace it all back to my own selfish desires. I wanted the world to center around me, to function around me. And Paul says, no one seeks God. You're guilty. No one seeks to glorify him. You are guilty. The second branch that he accuses us in is in our speech. He says, we are guilty of evil pouring forth from our mouths. Evil just pouring out of our mouths. The first physical place that Paul locates our sin before God is in our mouth. He says, your words are going to be a real problem for you when you stand before a holy and righteous God. Specifically, what he says is this. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers venom is under their lips. And their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. If you had a tape recorder of everything that you have ever said throughout your entire life. Think about that for a second. Every word you've ever spoken, in every circumstance, every setting, when your walls are at their lowest, when you are not afraid to say whatever it is that you're actually feeling that is on your mind... If you had a tape recorder of all of it, every word, and you were put on trial before God only on the basis of your words, what you have actually said about people, what you have actually said about God, what you have actually said about your fellow church members, what you have actually said about your spouse, your kids, or whatever it might be. If you are held accountable to every single word you've ever spoken, what Paul's saying is you're going to have a real problem on your hands. You're going to have a real problem on your hands. Just from your words. Because our mouth is an open grave. Our lips, they're full of venom. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. We deceive with our tongues. Consider what James says in verse 3. He says, no one can tame the tongue. No one. Not you. Not anyone. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison with the tongue. Listen to this. We bless our Lord and Father. And at the same time with it, we curse people who are made in God's image. But even this week, just this week, if you could run the tape back on the words that you have said. There would be things that you would not want shared from this stage in the church. There would be things that you have said. When your walls have been lowered. When you have felt totally free. And totally confident to just say what you really think. What you really feel. There would be words. Paul says, Are going to be a real problem before a holy God. And Jesus says, All that stuff that comes out of your mouth, it's really, all it is, is just whatever's in your heart pouring forth. It's what's inside of us that defiles us, and and it comes out in our words. And Paul says, We're going to be held accountable for every word, and that is going to be a problem. We're guilty in our words. The accusation against you is that you're guilty in your words, guilty in speech. And then he moves on to the third branch. He says that your sin, it actually comes out even further. It comes out in your actions and what you actually do. You're guilty of sin in the way that you act and in the way that you treat other people. Here's what he says. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. The path of peace they have not known. You see, Paul's not accusing everybody of being an axe murderer. He's not saying that everybody is an axe murderer. He's saying you don't know how to pursue peace. You, You don't know how to walk in a path of righteous goodness. Like when you're hurt... Or offended, or inconvenienced, or convinced that you have been wronged, and somebody else is the problem. We are quick to anger. We are quick to wrath. We're good at holding on to grudges. We're good at taking that bitter pill over and over and over again. We are easily brought into destructive behaviors, destructive attitudes, destructive habits. Destructive actions. And when we have evil desires, it's like we're just looking for a way to cash them in. We look for creative ways. When we have evil desires, we will look for the most creative ways to to cash in those evil desires without feeling the feeling of guilt or without getting caught and experiencing the consequences of our sin. We are quick to find ways to cash in our evil desires. And nobody has to teach us that. We are not good peacemakers. We are good at identifying evil in everybody else. And we're bad at getting over it. We have no problem getting bitter and staying bitter and then acting in ways that very subtly or egregiously express our bitterness. And our sinful actions, they are so greatly, I want you to listen, our sinful actions are so greatly restrained by the consequences that exist in our world. You remove the consequences that exist in our world, I guarantee you, sin will abound. Abound. Just think about this. If I told you there would be no consequences, okay? There would be zero consequences. You get to do one thing that you really want to do, and there will be no consequences. It will not damage your reputation before others at all, it will not get you put in jail. It won't damage your marriage. No consequences. None at all. You think there's anything you might want to do? See, when we remove the consequences just of this life, just of this world I think what we would find Is that sin is so alive in our hearts, ready to run rampant. And sometimes we look at our restrained version of ourselves and we think, pretty good. And God sees inside of us to the unrestrained version of ourselves. And he says, no, no, no. I know who you are. I know everything about you. And Paul says, you are guilty of sin. And he brings it all together with branch number four. He says, there is no fear of God in their eyes. That's so what he finally says in verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That, that's at the very heart of the problem. We fear other people. We, we hide our sin from others because we're afraid of getting in trouble. Or we're afraid of our reputation being damaged. We are afraid of what other people might think of us if they caught us doing things that we're ashamed of. What Paul says is, but you have no fear of God. You don't actually fear God. There's no fear over the offense that our sin is against a holy God. There's no fear of the offense that our words are when our walls are down. Against a holy God. And as long as we feel like our sin is covered, as long as we feel like our sin is hidden... Or that we're justified in doing it. We can be so desensitized to how heinous and evil our sin really is before the Lord. No fear of God. We can run our mouths against people. We can just let it fly. We can complain about them. We can throw them under the bus and not even bat an eye. We can let our temper rage and flare And not even bat an eye. We, we can rage at people from our tiny little Corolla as they cut us off on the highway. And not even bat an eye about it. We can lie. We can just deceive. J- just not be forthright. We can get into a world of evil on our phones or on our computers and in all of it, have no sense of the danger that we are in before God. No fear of God, fear of man, absolutely. Fear of getting caught, absolutely. Fear of what might happen, what consequences might come our way in this life, but no fear of God. And Paul says to you, and to every one of us, that is sin, and you are guilty. And it's sin of the most heinous kind. It is treason against God. Guilty. That is Paul's case. Against you and against me. But, but how can Paul accuse us without even knowing us? Like how can Paul sit there 2,000 years before I'm even born, before I even have a chance to prove myself? How can he say everyone is guilty? He doesn't know me. He doesn't know you. How can, he, how can he say you are guilty of such heinous crimes that you actually deserve in eternity in hell? And here's the answer. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say any of that. That's what God says of you. Those are not Paul's words. Not one of them. That is God's case made against you. Against your daughter. Against your son. Against your sweet, sweet elderly grandmother. Against your neighbor. Against Mother Teresa. Against Gandhi. Against Mary, the mother of Jesus. And everyone else. That's God's case against you. That's what that is. Did you notice what Paul said in verse 10? He says, as it is written. Paul doesn't pull this out of thin air. He's not just a bully going off on people, he's not an old curmudgeon being super jaded, just thinking everybody stinks. Here's my prediction for the world for the next 2,000 years everybody's going to stink. This is Paul quoting God's case against humanity. You know where verse 10, 11, 12 come from? They come from Psalm 14. Paul's just quoting Psalm 14. Here's what it says. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. Verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see, to, to assess, to evaluate, and to render a judgment he, he sees if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. Verse 3, here's the verdict. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We might not like it. We might reject it with everything inside of us. We might feel like we are being wrongly accused, but this is God's assessment of you. And of humanity, and and remember what Paul said last week in verse 4. He said, let God be true even though every man is a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. God will not be found wrongfully accusing any one of us at his judgment. This is God's assessment, and he will not be found wrong in it. And it's not mysterious. It's not mystical. It's not hidden. It is God himself who accuses you and every other human being of crimes so heinous against him and against your fellow man that they are worthy of eternal death in hell. So why is Paul writing this? And why do we need to sit here on a Sunday morning when we could be doing anything else And be dragged into the courtroom of God and punched in the face with that accusation. Why is Paul writing this? Why does he take so much time and effort through the first three chapters of Romans to pull us into the courtroom and just punch us in the face? With these accusations of our heinous sin against God. Why does he do it? Well, here's why. Paul is writing to shut your mouth. close our mouth. Paul is writing to silence the endless barrage of self-justification, of self-righteousness, of excuses, of complaints, of reasons, of questions, of accusations against God. He is writing to end all of the endless barrage of things that we have to say to close our mouth before the Lord, to silence us before it is too late. This is what he says in Romans 3.19. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are actually subject to the law. So that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. He's writing to close our mouth. For no one will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Here's what Paul is saying there. God has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong through the law. He has revealed the standard. The law that he gave the Jews... Written on tablets of stone, the law that he gave to literally every single person in the world, written on our hearts. That law has revealed to us what is right and what is wrong. The standard is the standard, and it's clear, and it's undisputable, and it's unmovable, and it's unshakable. The law is what it is. What is right is declared by God with clarity. We know what God demands of us as human beings. Whether we've seen it written on pages or seared into our hearts through the conscience God has given us. It is plain and it is clear in the law of God. Do not lie. Don't don't be deceptive. Do not covet. Do not look with lust. Do not use your words to tear down, but rather to build up. Do not gossip. Do not slander. Do nothing out of selfishness or selfish ambition. These are the laws of God written clearly. Clearly. And those rules, they're not going to make you right before God. They're not going to make you holy before God. They are going to prove your guilt. They are. God's accusations against us in Romans 3, they are designed for one purpose, to shut our mouths before him, to silence us, to humble us, to stop the endless barrage of excuses and reasons and self justification and this is why, number one, if you are not actually in Christ, if you not, are not actually in Christ, you need your mouth to be shut and your ears to be opened because salvation is received through a message. If you are not actually in Christ, made totally brand new in Jesus Christ, you need your mouth to be shut because when our mouths are moving, even just the mouth of our mind, when our mouths are still moving, our ears are closed and we are not listening and you need your ears to be open because salvation is received through a message. Forgiveness for all of the heinous sin that you've committed against God and your fellow man, that forgiveness can only be received through a message. And when our mouths are moving, our ears are shut. Do you realize that? God accuses you of sin so heinous that you are deserving of eternal death in hell and you can't fix it. You will never prove to God that he is wrong and you are enough. You will never prove to God that he is guilty and you are innocent. No one is going to be able to push back against those accusations from God and say that wasn't fair. That wasn't me. That was not that wasn't true of me. I'm wrongfully accused. Look at my resume. Just look, God. Look at how much I have volunteered. Look at how many hours I've spent at the food shelf. Look at, look at my hours of serving underprivileged kids. Look, God, look at my record. Look at my church attendance. Look at how I've provided for my family. God, look at how many sacrifices I've made. God, look at how kind I was, God. You can say all you want, but God is not going to be moved. And he will tell you plainly, you did not seek me. You did not glorify me. Your mouth was full of sin that flowed from your own heart. Your actions were not pleasing to me and you did not fear me. Guilty, guilty, guilty. It's coming. And I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and tell you it's not. And the only way that your problem can be dealt with is for your mouth to be closed. For your ears to be opened. Because eternal life, the greatest transformation that takes place in the entire world. Going from eternal death to eternal life. It happens through receiving a message. That is it. That is how evil people become good. That is how dead people come to life. That is how God changes the world. He gives his spirit through faith in a message, the message of Christ, the Savior of the world, who died on a cross the very death that our sin deserved your only hope is the message of Christ and until your mouth is closed under the guilt of the accusations that God himself has leveled against us until your mouth is closed you will not receive that message and that's the message that we're going to be looking at all of next Sunday as we finally turn to Romans 3:21 And you better believe we're going to celebrate it. But here's the deal. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Neither am I. So if you don't know where you stand with God today, don't wait until next week. Don't wait. You need Christ today. And if you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Christ or to be forgiven of your sin through Christ or to receive the message of forgiveness through Christ, then you need to ask someone. You need to ask me. Ask one of our pastors. Ask somebody you're in community group with. Ask somebody who brought you here. You need Christ. And you need Christ today. If you are not in Christ, you need your mouth to be closed and your ears opened to the message of salvation through Christ. But second, if you are in Christ, if you are actually in Christ, made new, made alive in Jesus Christ, you need your mouth shut in humility before the Lord so that God himself may open it in praise and glory to him and in thankfulness to your brothers and sisters in Christ, that the body of Jesus may be one for the glory and honor of the Lord. If you are in Christ, you don't need to beat yourself up. You don't need to to have a woe is me attitude or sulk around in misery and self-deprecation because of your sin. But you do need the endless barrage of self justification and excuses and complaints and frustrations and hurts and annoyances and bitternesses and grumblings and moanings and grievances about your job, about your kids, about your spouse, about your pastor, about your circumstances, about your coworkers, about your boss, about your neighbors, about your fellow church members, uh, about the situation that you find yourselves in. You need all of it, the endless barrage of moanings and complaints and grievances to stop for our mouth to be shut and for our hearts to be humbled so that God himself may open it in praise and glory to him and in thankfulness for your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ so that the body of Jesus may be one to the glory and honor of God. And as we close our time together this morning, we're going to do two things. First, we're going to let God close our mouths in communion. Normally, I would encourage you to take communion with those around you, but today, I, just, I want to encourage you to take communion just reflecting in your own heart with a closed mouth. Reflect on the work of Christ on the cross, his shed blood poured out for us, his body broken for us, because of the sin that we've actually committed against God. And against our fellow man. And I want to encourage us to be humbled and silenced as we come to the Lord's table this morning. Be sober-minded. Confess your sin. Be humbled and confess. Confess any hidden sin that you've been holding on to. Confess sin against others. Confess sin against God. And confess the goodness and kindness of God to, to forgive us through Christ that our mouths be clothed, closed and our hearts be humbled and just confess that before the Lord.